I'm Alyssa Bresnak, and over the past year, I've spoken with founders and fans, investors and engineers, employees, celebrities, all to answer one question. What happened to HQ Trivia? An app that drew millions of live viewers and was supposed to be the future of TV. Until it wasn't. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is Boom Bust, the rise and fall of HQ Trivia. Now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Episode two, season two of The Wire, the, the very much maligned season two. And I hope, uh, and I said this, we both said this after we broke down episode one, that hopefully if this is your second rewatch on The Wire, because I think that's important. If this is your second rewatch, I just have a feeling you have a much different opinion of season two. I, I'm, I'm betting on that than maybe you did the first time around. But nevertheless, here we are, episode two, Collateral Damage. Uh, van a lot of that going around in this episode um, for everybody so why don't we just first start by talking about kind of our major takeaways or overall impressions of episode two what do you got it deals with powerlessness it deals with people who are in the middle of things and have had wherever it was that they were used to having sort of stripped from them and how they get it back we see this on the docks uh, with Sabaka where he feels powerless in talking to the Greeks because he doesn't know what's going on inside those containers. Now, before, uh, he didn't want to know, but when he's talking to the Greek uh, this time, uh, he he realizes that in order for him to be able to sleep at night, he needs to know whether or not there are actually human beings inside there because, bang, uh, 14 girls have passed away. He feels powerless. The, Greeks are, the, the Greek is operating from a complete position of power, but Sabaka feels powerless. Avon feels powerless, which is a weird place for Avon to be. The drug connection to New York has dried up. It is no longer there. Being that it is no longer there, now the organization doesn't really have uh, as much of a footing to keep their territory in West Baltimore. How are they going to switch up now that who they have now that who they are is being put into question? I mean, you can just go down the line. Daniels, right? Um, uh, Daniels is in a situation to where he is completely feeling the pinch of being pushed out of the inner circle of the bosses. And now he has decided, and he decides in this episode, um, that he is going to leave the police department altogether. He's going to leave everywhere. So what we see now is a bunch of people who are realizing just how up against it they are. It's coming from Sabatka. Remember, in a situation, can't see his head above water. And, and really, in the wire, you don't see that much of this. What you see is how people react into systems. You don't see people who are, you know, drowning uh, in, a, in, in a sense of powerlessness. And when I watched this episode, it seemed like everybody is trying to get a handle on everything. And it seems like in each individual case, it's too much for them all. And it's really not until the end of this episode that the season itself 
really starts to take shape uh, when a natural rhythm of how season two is going to go starts to kind of play itself out. That's a good observation about the powerlessness that we're seeing pervade the entire group. But something else occurred to me when watching this episode is it seems like, and maybe this is a whole theme throughout the wire. I think actually it is something only gets done when somebody gets pissed off or they want, or they want revenge. Like that's, it's usually one of those two because one of the more interesting moments is when McNulty's going through all of this, his curiosity about what's happened to these girls and some of that or a lot of that is fueled in part by him wanting to stick it to Rawls. Mm-hmm. And when Beatty realizes and she's just like, this is about fucking over your boss. Well, if they don't eat the cases, then you will. She's thinking that he has some altruistic reason or it's because he starts to, um, you know, have this sense that an injustice has been done. But it, that's not it at all. And really what, you know, what's already been established e- even as early as episode two is that what's starting to drive this particular um, season is is Valchek wanting to get back at Frank Sabaka, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like everything is motivated by one of the two things. Either somebody's angry about something and needs to have something done, and usually that anger is completely based off a of personal interest, or they want to get revenge. Like everything's around – everybody acts like um, in The Wire that they – everything should be orbited around them. And that's why it's kind of it always leaves you with these sort of, you know, gaping um, sense of of hopelessness (laughs) with some of these episodes, because there's not a whole lot of people in the wire who are doing the right thing for the right reasons. It's a whole lot of people doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And that is also what makes it compelling, too. Yeah, I'd argue that that kind of looks deeper into the show's reliance on institutions and systems. Right. Because institutions and systems have a very specific dynamic. They're machines, and they have a very specific way in which they run. They have a very specific, you know, I said they're machines, almost a mechanical way in which those things go. And in order for something to go wrong or to incite the drama that the show needs, one cog has to decide it's going to do something out of the norm. And the question then becomes, why would that person or why would that cog do that? Would they do it because of some sense of, uh, uh, like you said, altruism or or goodness inside of their heart? Or would they do it because it's something in it for them? And I think what the show tells you is most of the time people do stuff in this show, period. It's because there's something in it for them. Even Lester, who I'd say is the closest thing that you get to just like a good cop. The reason why he does the things that he does is, to me, it's there's still a feeling that Lester Freeman loves the thrill of the chase, that he's just a natural, that there's, that there's something cathartic for him about figuring these things out. Um, like, there's a scene in Heat where, uh, you know, Al Pacino is talking to the scene in Heat, should I say, not a scene in Heat. The scene, there's a, the scene in Heat is where Al Pacino is talking to uh, Robert De Niro And Al Pacino says that he is haunted by all the victims of the crimes that have happened over the years. That these people, he dreams about them and they call at him and they pull at him. That scene is there to let you know that that guy is driven by something more than himself to be a cop. And that's something that in other cop-related sort of uh, um, content, 
that you see that. You see somebody who just wants to solve crimes, who just wants to clean up the streets, who just wants to do all of that stuff. And very rarely does it happen that their ego or a self-preservation, like Lance been told to, 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 to McNulty, or um, sort of self-advancement, you never really see that come in there because you have to look at those guys as purely heroic characters. In The Wire, it's just the opposite. You almost see all of their self-advancement and it, it, it kind of uh, first, and any altruism comes later when they've actually humanly connected to somebody that's been impacted by something that's happened. Or it just comes by accident. Right. That it's a byproduct of some action, some selfish action that they've taken. They just so happen to, you know, save a bunch of people while trying to burn it all down. Right. And and so it uh it was especially noteworthy in this in uh in this particular episode. Um so getting to the recap now. So we have uh Sabaka and Valchek, as I mentioned, they're officially at war over this glass stained window at the church. And when you think about that. <laughs> And everything that happens in season two and then to realize it all started over a church and a glass stained window. Yeah. But talk about petty. He's going to go with glass stained. Huh? You're not going to do stained glass. Or, or, you're right. Stained glass. Wow. Come on. Way man. to get me. Way to get me. You know, that just speaks to how stupid I think this whole plot against each other is, even though it's obviously great television. Right. But yes, not glass stained, stained glass. Right. I stand corrected. I don't want to pull up uh, 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 pull another Burel. Oh, Pure, uh, another Purell. Purell Burel. Another Purell Burel. Right. So um, Valchek, as a result of this insidious war that's going on between him and Frank Sabaka, starts targeting the dock workers with parking tickets, DUIs, uh, even puts together an entire unit, very key here, to go after Frank Sabaka uh, because he is wondering still, how did he get bested by a guy who is running a union that is increasingly irrelevant. And he's trying to figure out where is the money actually coming from. And he forms an alliance with Burel Purell mm -hmm. in order to get this unit, which he puts his son-in-law Prez in, uh, who's not technically in charge, but you know, sort of in charge. He's mm -hmm. an authority a figure in this unit. And it's very reminiscent to me of when uh, Daniels headed up the unit that eventually arrested Avon and D'Angelo because uh, it's got the same feel. Bunch of humps. <laughs> yeah. Even well, got my I mean, man this drunk. Is, this is essentially them bringing back major crimes. Major yes, crimes. This is, is major crimes coming back, just not in any way that Presbolewski thought that it would come back when he asked to do bigger cases, uh, when he asked Valchak to do bigger cases. Definitely. Now, you mentioned Avon um, and, and what life is like for him, but even though he is a sense of powerlessness for him because he's not on the streets, he's not able to... Uh, to be more hands-on with the things that he does, I think you could definitely argue that while he may not be as powerful as he was on the outside, he's still pretty powerful yeah, in jail. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's still, I mean, he solves his inventory problem in this episode through a plug in Atlanta, and now he's trying to fix his relationship with D'Angelo, who, oh, by the way, is starting to snort drugs in jail. Yeah. Um, Talk about that mirror a uh, uh, Wallace going right? full Wallace. I haven't let going full Wallace, full Wallace in this episode. Yes, uh, and Stringer, of course, expresses some concern that D'Angelo is not going to be able to carry this twenty-year sentence. He expresses that to Avon by continuing to ask. McNulty still on a revenge tear, stuck homicide with the fourteen murders, uh, dropping their clearance rate below fifty percent. Ultimately, though, hence the theme: collateral damage. Bunk and Lester 
are the ones who wind up being that collateral damage because they uh, get stuck with the task of solving 14 Jane Doe's. Now, the Greek, who was more of a shadowy figure in the first uh, episode of this season, now you're getting a real feel for their operation and how they get down. And um, they make their re- their ruthlessness kind of uh, very apparent uh, as they get to the bottom of what happened to the dead women. Uh, you know, the Greek or not the Greek, rather his 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 partner in crime, <laughs> uh, Spiros, kills the shepherd after learning that the 14 dead women were the result essentially of a side hustle gone wrong because the shepherd decided he was going to make the girls available to the men or the crew, make a little side money. Uh, or as he liked to put it, um, they have been pulling on their putos yes. <laughs> for weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, somebody, uh, one of the men gets rough with a girl, kills her. And then the other girls see it. They also have to die because uh, they kind of witness what happened. So it's a mistake one uh, that has happened all around that really tries the Greek and Spiros' patience. And because... We are getting this inside look at what this organization is about. That's who we thought we'd take a deep dive into for this episode, the Greek and Spiros. They weren't patriotic. I got nothing against the Turks. It's the old world. It's the new. I cannot reiterate enough how risky this was for David Simon, is that he has everybody invested, emotionally invested in the Barksdales and does a complete 180 and brings in an entirely new organization the link is the links that will be there are not as apparent now, but slowly he's trying to unravel them and give the Baltimore drug trade and not just drugs, but uh, as you see, we're talking about dead women's uh, human trafficking, sex slavery, giving this problem of what's happened to Baltimore a much more panoramic view than what we've seen. And, you know, the I think the meticulousness the shadowiness of both the Greek and of Spiros, the carefulness. I mean, they are, um, you know, the thing about Avon, I was just sort of mentally kind of doing a comparison between them and what we've seen from the Barksdales is that Avon still craves a sense of, of social contract. He still craves, um, you know, he's always talking about family. There's a part of him, even though he has, he has to, for the sake of his well-being and for his organization, have a level of distance between himself and the streets. He still craves that connection. There is no connection between the Greek, Spiros, and whatever's happening on the outside. Their world is literally that coffee shop, and that's it. Mm. And they don't let insiders in too much. Um, they are very, un, you know, they're very, they don't trust anybody and they're always working, it seems, on something that's two or three levels above of what they're dealing with. I mean, they are very much almost they're prominent and invisible at the same time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, they're exotic. And I think it, the I think when you had domestic sort of uh, uh, criminals, uh, a familiar criminals um, in the to a degree in the first season what you saw were some of the things that anchor people to the parts where they are. What you have to remember about the Greek and Spiros is that they're far away from wherever they originated from. So there are already a bunch of decisions that they've had to make in order to cut themselves off. And so is Sergey, right? In, um, in order to cut themselves off from whatever it is there. Either things got too hot there or there wasn't enough territory there. 
but there's only a certain degree of connection that they're going to have to anything and anyone because they're exotic criminals. They're coming from a place um, that's that's far, far away. That means there's things that they don't need. That same sense of family and inclusion that some of the guys might have because they're hustling exactly where they live, they don't need that. They don't need that at all. Kind of like when I moved from Baton Rouge, people say that I mentioned Baton Rouge in every episode. You got it again. Keep when it I, coming. <laughs> when I moved from Baton Rouge to Los Angeles, the sense of family that I have there, I don't necessarily need it here, right? I knew that that was something that I had to leave behind um, when I when you come out to Los Angeles. And you don't try to recreate that. You just build the things that you need to build here. You're lean. You're hungry. You're, you're at a goal. And that's what you see with them. Um, also, they, they react and they move different. Like you can, uh, there's a certain air about them that says these are the criminals that you don't catch. There are certain criminals that you catch, and then there are criminals that you don't catch. And a, a criminal that you don't catch is a guy that has different setups all over the world, right? That can hit somebody in another hemisphere and say, I need to lay up. That can escape back to someplace. That has bigger, more shadowy oligarchs that might be controlling him. And when that starts to take shape, not only in this particular episode, but in this in this season, you start to see that what's going on in West Baltimore, in Richmond, in Gary, in New Orleans, in Miami, it, it is a symptom of a global disease that is the drug trade. Our war on drugs is very, very specific in the way that we do it. However, the drug trade is global and it involves planes and ships and shadowy figures and uh, 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 federal agents and all different different types of people have to come together to make that work. And this episode, these characters are just giving you a taste. You never take the full bite, giving you a taste of the fact that there is, as familiar as we are now with, with, with West Baltimore, there's a whole different class of criminal that we are completely unfamiliar with and we are going to get more familiar with them as this goes on, even sort of uh, the, the, the way they talk, the way they move, the fashion, uh, the sort of disdain they have for some other ethnic groups and things like that. These things that, you know, they, they, they just kind of they make them a little bit more untouchable. They, they it, it, it almost seems that they wanted to put a gap between the kingpins that we thought we knew and the kingpins that we're about to meet. And that, that kind of happened with the Greek conspiracy. It reminds me a lot of how sports fans look at owners versus players, right? The owners, even though they can, I mean, they're the ones writing the checks. Uh, they're the ones making a lot of the decisions, if not all of the the major decisions. Uh, you know, when a new stadium is built, this is something that the owners or an owner would push for. And so they're, they're the ones that uh, at times often mislead the taxpayers. But yet who gets the most vitriol? It's the players. Right. It's the players and the coaches. Right. They get the most vitriol. And this is kind of how I see uh, the Greek and, and Spiros and, and even Boris to some degree, or as I like to refer to him, White Weebay. Right. Um, That's, uh, he's the Weebay of this season. Yes, he's White Weebay. By the way, you, you, you actually called him Boris. It's Sergey. Like, 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 I know, but I, I like Boris. I know. Look, always Boris. Yes, it's always Boris. Okay. Uh, better yet, I'm just going to call him White Weebay. So. White Weebay. Yeah, he is the Weebay of this season. By he the way, the- every season of The Wire 
has a Weebay. Every season. There's every not, season does Every have a season has a Weebay. He is <laughs> the right. Weebay of this season. He's the Weebay of this season. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, even though, as we're beginning to learn, that they're the ones bringing the supply in there. They have connections overseas we don't even know about, deep shadowy things that are happening. But the focus and the emphasis and the emphasis by major crimes, most police departments, is always on the Avon Barksdale. Yeah. Right. It it never really goes higher than that because as Lester has pointed out a thousand times in this in this uh series is that when you start following the money, you never, never know, know where, where it's goes. gonna go. You don't know where it's going to go, and you're usually afraid of it. You follow exotic Uh, criminals, you get exotic problems. You follow you follow regular criminals, you get regular problems. And I think cops like having regular problems more than they like having exotic ones. They don't. They don't (laughs) want to be dealing with customs, right? Yeah, they don't want none of that shit. Right? right? They just want to be able to lock somebody up, send them down to the county, and maybe they take a nice trip upstate, and then that's that. But uh, the Greek though reminds me. You brought up Heat, and it reminded me of one of my favorite lines from Heat. Uh, when uh, I think it was Robert De Niro that says, don't let yourself get too attached to anything you're not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat. 30 seconds flat. Yeah, if you feel the heat around the corner. Mm -hmm. And that's what he is, is that they they give him, and this is not just for this season or this particular episode, they give him just enough mystery to where you understand he's an important figure, but there is this need to know more. Like, why is you know everybody's motivations for doing things? You know, I don't know if we ever get to the bottom of his necessarily, other than money, and maybe that's all the the, the, mo- the motivation you mm-hmm. you need. And what was interesting about the way that they killed the shepherd is when you're watching that scene and he's telling him like, "Hey, I'm not going to do anything to you. I just need to know what happened." Even though anybody with a pea sized brain knows that something is about to happen to this man. Yeah. Was it Andy? Sam. Sam. I don't know nothing about you him. Know. And you're going to tell me about oh. it too. After that, you're done. I give you my word. What is interesting to me is looking at his facial expressions and reading the Greek's body language. He is more upset. Not, I mean, he doesn't give a shit about the girls. That's for sure. But he's upset about the bad business of it all. Like that's oh, of what, course. That's what kind of drives him and like is really messing with him is is that from a transactional standpoint, he really fucked up four million dollars. And yeah, uh, yeah. Like he doesn't. I mean, give of a, course, right? Yeah, he doesn't give a rat's ass about the girls. What he's mm-hmm. looking at is the calculation and how it fits into the bottom line. And you can't become that type of criminal um, at that level when you're moving things through a port, like, you know, that's a highly organized. You think about the 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 scale of what the Barsdales were doing. Um, you know, you get popped running drugs from Baltimore to New Jersey, you know, something like that. Here, we're talking about international waters. This is high-level complexity. It's got to be the bottom line. It's never well, I mean, about the I mean, think about it this way. All the shit that Avon was moving and the Barksdale was moved from New York could be transported in a car. In a the car, these motherfuckers need ship Ships. containers. They need, they need, Ships. they need a, they need a whole union on their side to be able to run their scams. It's just a different level of criminal that we're dealing with when you're dealing with those guys. 
you uh, at the the since we have done a lot of NBA comparisons, the NBA comparison that most came to mind with Spiros and the Greek was uh, Katie and Russ. Interesting. Katie and Russ. That's what came to mind for me. And you know, between the two, obviously, Russ had the more forceful personality, mm-hmm. right? And he was the one who, um, you know, he he was the emotional thermometer for right. uh, Oklahoma City when they were together. And that's kind of what Spiros is. Like, Spiros, I think he enjoys killing. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's any question. Like, he kind of enjoys being the muscle. Maybe not as much as White Weebay. Right. Right? Because <laughs> White Weebay, you know, he he, he going to put some shots up. Like, yeah. no question about it. Mm-hmm. But I think he enjoys the terror of it to some degree. And not just with killing people, but even with the fear that he evokes in um, having just regular conversations. And he enjoys the jockeying of it of it all right so he's the point guard that's kind of moving up the floor um you know trying to set the pace and the greek is is more finesse i mean mm-hmm. look at the way the greek dress i mean he dresses like you know he's uh a, an american lit teacher right you know what i'm yeah. saying yeah. it's like he enjoys the finesse of this the business part of it that's the part that really speaks to him i mean he'll do what he has to do to protect the empire he's built and we you know, really, I don't. I mean, we we know that they're running Baltimore, but who knows where else their tentacles reach? Because especially later on, um, in the series itself, you start feeling as if like, all right, these dudes are just like doing operations here in Baltimore. Like they got a lot of shit that's kind of going down, and they run Baltimore in a way, but in a way, they're so outside of the scope of anything. It's almost like. They're not even, they're not the webmaster. They built the site. It's almost as if like they, they don't, hmm, how can I put it? They run Baltimore, but then they're so hands-off that they kind of don't. They're like, like no one has any clue that they are anything. No one, like no one knows. And it, it, it you, you'd be hard pressed to find people who are gonna know. You know what I mean? So in terms of true power, true power, is almost always held by someone that you cannot identify. Almost always. Now, you want to look at like somebody and say, oh, well, the president of the United States is the most famous guy on earth normally when he's the president. Um, like, isn't that the most powerful? To a degree, but the question would be then who controls him or who controls whoever's whatever. So, like, and I'm not going down to like a whole conspiracy theory, Kim Trail rabbit hole, but what I'm saying is that for these guys, they are so on the inside of all of this stuff that it's like they run it, but all at the same time, they just kind of make sure that it runs itself. It's interesting to me. Yeah, and what else that kind of stands out about that is notice that the other things the the bosses of this show have to do. Um, you know, Frank Sabaka's got to build relationships. Uh even Avon has to build relationships. Yeah. Stringer is all about building relationships and trying to widen the scope of the Barksdale empire, but not them. I mean, the Greeks aren't in any, any rooms with any politicians. I not mean, they're not, they're not doing any oh, of the stuff. Not, they got some connections. They do we're have gonna, some connections. We're going to find yes. out. No, no. They we're have find some out later. huge connections in gigantic places that allow them to do their thing, but not the conventional ones like the Clay Davises of the world. Correct. Uh, it, it's like a lot of, and maybe in their origin story, they did all that stuff already. And right. now they're just kind of resting on the fr- fruits of their labor, which is possible. But part of why I think they are so 
mysterious still and uh, hard to catch is they're not their hands really aren't on anything. Yeah, they leave their you know, fingerprints they don't have off. To, they leave their fingerprints off it and they don't have to move it the same way that everybody else has to move. They're totally different. And they've let a lot of the things that have to funnel through them, it has to come to them. And when the, when the heat kind of really starts to tick up on the organization, um, on, on what they've built, just notice how they extricate, extricate themselves versus how everybody else did. Right. It's like, to your point, it's just a completely different level than what we've seen so far of the drug game. And I think it was... Um, intentional, but also it was Simon's way of trying to, uh, I, he he has said it repeatedly, is like he wanted the story to be told a little bit more through class as opposed to race. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it allows him the flexibility and frankly, the uh, the authenticity of trying, of helping people to understand that the drug trade, that nobody is blameless. Right. Nobody is blameless yeah. and that this is not as much as people have tried to pin this, particularly on black and brown people. It's a whole lot of people that have their hands in it. I mean, you brought up Frank Sabaka and, and with the with the dead girls. The fact is, uh, he didn't want to know what was in the t- containers because he didn't want to have to ever in- address how he was complicit in something. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even if they find an entire tank, uh, entire container full of coke. It still is you're still complicit. And he never wanted to face that reality where he had to realize that you're not just somebody who, oh, yeah, I look the other way. And, you know, I, I can figure out a way to rationalize with myself what I'm done, what oh, I've done. You're a no, drug you're dealer, a, too. You're a drug dealer, too. You're a drug like, dealer, yes, too. You're a part of human trafficking. You're a That's murderer, you too. You're a pimp, too. Whatever. You're a booster. You're a you're a thief. You're all of those things, too. And Frank Sabaka is quickly coming to the realization of the scale of what he's a part of, without a doubt. Yeah. Let's uh, move on and, and talk about who we get introduced to in this uh, series. Two in, actually important figures for uh, obviously two different reasons. One is White Mike. We mm, need White Mike. <laughs> white Mike. Love White Mike, man. <laughs> yeah. And the other is uh, Valchek's developer friend, uh, Andy, Yeah, who we will see a little bit in and out uh, kind of through the rest of his season. And if you were able to connect the dots, it's like what he's building is directly impacting the ports uh, for those who didn't kind of pick up on that, on the reason why that him going to see him was important. And he of course provided more fuel into Valchek deciding to look into what the union and, and Frank Sabaka were up to. Um, what were some of your best scenes and, and favorite moments in this one? Avon and Brianna. When Brianna visits Avon in jail. So Roberto have been caught? Yep. DEA. Got him in New York. Not a shit makes sense. Money we sent for the last go-around came back. All of it. Damn. They ain't gonna touch us now? Goddamn Dominicans run around scared acting like we the problem. Roberto won't even see us. String had to go to the lawyer up there. They're saying they have to be sure before they get back with us. They seen you only got seven years, so... So they think I'm a motherfucking snitch? They ain't saying they thinking. They just don't know how the feds got to Roberto. That's Avon right there. When I was talking about kind of powerlessness right there, that's Avon at his most vulnerable, maybe. Avon is vulnerable there in two ways. Number one, he's vulnerable because he no longer has the connection to the product that he needs to hold his situation. He's being called a snitch. Avon Barstow, his reputation is everything, right? 
We yeah, you know see that. how quickly he reacted when she insinuated that that's what uh, the infamous Roberto might be thinking. Right. And so Avon, is that's been taken from him. His The power of his reputation has been taken from him. And then something else that he puts a lot of stock into, which is family. You seen D'Angelo lately? He on the J tier. You know what I mean? It's very difficult for me to get over that, you know. So you ain't checking on him. And Donette's out and about. I don't know what's what anymore. And what's up with Donette? I leave messages, she ain't calling back. Well, she ain't had her ass down here regular, neither. We need to tighten shit up, Avon. I mean, she should be bringing his son by every week. Yeah, I'm gonna put string on that, too. After all he has done for us, Dee needs to be cared for, Avon. Promises were made. No. He took the 20. He ain't complaining. But he is carrying a lot of weight for this family. And we keeping him close. D being cold toward me right now. He and this motherfucker trying to make adjustments and shit. Adjustments? Brianna, you know damn well I ain't gonna let shit happen to him, right? He, in this conversation, is having to convince his sister uh, that he's gonna do um, what she needs him to do, which is to take care of family. And he really wants to be able to uh, convince to her that he is the same man that he's already uh, convinced her, should I say, that he's the same man that he's always been. And it's not really a posture that we've seen in Avon before to do any convincing to anyone that he's anything. So it's a very, very interesting scene for me. I also enjoyed Rhonda asking Jimmy a question that we've always, we've all heard. You know what I'm saying? The fellas. You know what I'm saying? And, and you know, to be honest with Some you, of y'all probably went through some PTSD when this happened. <laughs> yeah, not just the fellas, but, you know, the ladies here too. The, the question, what am I? What are we? What are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> you know that, you know, and, it, and by the way, when that question comes, it, it's always like, see, in this kind of case, it's like she's coming in. Obviously, Jimmy's got blasted. He took the 14 shots. Uh, and she's asking him kind of, what are we? What are we doing? Normally, it doesn't happen that way. Normally, it doesn't happen at a downtime. Normally, when you get hit with the what are we question, what am I? It's normally in the middle of something amazing. Like, you're leaving. Like, <laughs> what you, man? What could that be? <laughs> like, yeah, you know what I mean? In the middle of something amazing. You know, it's going to, like, what, what? Stop, stop, stop. I just want to know, what is this? What are we doing? Now, you ask? Uh, uh, so, or right or right after that amazing or right thing. after, or right after something else that's amazing. Like, right after you go to Dave and Buster's and something like that, you leave. <laughs> And all of a sudden, the emotion of the good time hits her, and then she asks a question. So, but you know, but it's under the it's under the same construct though. Is that it still follows the blueprint of women asking that question when you guys are kind of vulnerable? And well, we're who vulnerable. Vul- yes, and who isn't vulnerable after you, you know, drank and, and been shit faced and you're hungover as fuck, and you really want her to stop talking? But she's like, by the way, what are we? You like, I will say we are whatever I need to say if she would be quiet right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that. Uh, that's actually makes a whole fucking lot of sense. Um, but I will say this: the best scene to me is the Greek and Spiros uh, when we see them get dirty. Um, is the first time that we've seen uh, guys on this level get dirty. We've seen Weebay do dirt. We've seen Omar do dirt, but we never saw any real dirt get done uh, by Avon or Stringer in that way. Mm-hmm. It just does so much to separate who they are in their criminal enterprise. Um, we talked a little bit about this, obviously, just before, uh, from what we just saw. Uh, these guys come from a different place. They handle business in a different way. 
uh, and some things they are willing to do them themselves. And it also shows you just how far out of the scope of law enforcement they feel they are. One of the reasons why Avon would never sit there while somebody was getting murdered at this particular point is because he understands that there are eyes all around and he can't be even within six degrees of separation of something like that happening. These guys are a different breed. And I think that that scene goes a long way to kind of separate them um, from some of the guys that we had already kind of got accustomed to. Yeah, I, I thought um, um, in terms of, you know, kind of best scenes a, a little bit, uh, there were some both small and kind of big and more significant one. I, I, I mean, one of the lines I loved in here is, you know, Weebay, that's a, a, you mentioned powerlessness. Like Weebay, we're not used to him being in this position. Uh, you know, my man getting his fake fish walk, like knocked out, knocked out of his uh, uh aquarium, and yeah. we know how Weebay feels about the fish. Right? Yeah, that was a hard scene to watch, man. When Weebay getting it? his fish, <laughs> Weebay don't love nothing more. It's the pit beef and the fish. It was hard to watch this man get his fish. And wait, and they fake fish. That's what makes it crazy. It's right. like so you really in the pen with fake fish, right? Okay, get it how you live, man. Whatever, whatever <laughs> is your mental. Let him keep his oasis. peace. That's his peace. I, I, Hey, if, if fake fish in the water get his fees, whatever. But he ain't had that piece for long. Right. Because Tillman uh, disrupted that and, and tossed his entire room. And come to find out, it's because the corrections officer's cousin, uh, Weebay, probably murdered him. I mean, he couldn't really remember. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, maybe I did, but I probably did. Right. And I love when Avon says to him, you need a scorecard to keep up with Joe Lethal ass. Right. Even Avon was surprised. Avon was like, we did that? You're right. Hey, you're right. Like that's us. Okay, right. All right. Man. Yeah. That's when you know um, you may have possibly murdered a lot of people. What's up with this motherfucker? You remember Ladante? Burning from over the pole. Holmes finally caught him at Carver parking lot after school. We did that. All right. Tell me, was Ladante's cousin or some such? He found out I ate the charge. He busted my chops. Ladante. I can't even remember that one. You need a scorecard to keep up with your legal ass. I loved, again, McNulty sticking it to Rawls, who so deserves this. Mm. And uh, Rawls trying to play cat and mouse with the state guys, trying not get not to get stuck with these 14 bodies. And so when it's clear that he has gotten stuck with these 14 bodies and McNulty has, uh, you know, won in this, uh, this, this battle right here, and uh, the guy from... The, the state police looks at him and said, Bill, you look like you could use a good cup of coffee. Yeah. I was like, bring that dagger. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> Rawls had that one moment of humanity. And I was just like, he just went all the way back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I thought those were uh, two pretty important scenes. And another thing, The Wire, as I repeatedly mentioned, they do really well, is taking a really small dialogue to hint at or to illuminate a, a truly huge problem. And they do it in a way where they don't hit you over the head with a message. And when the Greek, after they kill the shepherd, and he goes, anyway, there will be other girls. In the year, each whore would bring a quarter million. What is that? Four million dollars. Gone. All right. Anyway, there'll be other girls. And so that kind of, I think, puts a different emphasis on the human trafficking mm-hmm. is that people uh, are kind of caught up in, you know, oh, it's, it's the sex trade and this and that. It's like, no, no, you have to understand the amount of money that's really in that. Major industry. It's, it's a major industry, especially when you're talking about 
forcing people against their will. I mean, that's why it's referred to as sex slavery. So I thought that was a a nice uh, way to put a bow on that murder, if you will, and also kind of bring up a much larger and significant um, issue. In terms of one of our favorite categories here, File This Away for Later, so many of these. Yeah. So many. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I think the best one, just because I'm, again, thinking about how it shows up later, um, was two. Well, you, I th- I'm sure you can guess what my number one is. It's probably is, is when Brianna tells Avon that Donetta hasn't been to see D'Angelo. Yeah. And Avon says, I'm going to put string on it. Yeah. That's a file that away for a later moment. And that's file a file that away. Yeah. Write it down. Take a picture, man. Right. Yeah. That's also a fuck, that's, fuck that away for a later moment. Like, like, <laughs> right. Cause it's getting ready to go down. Uh, but yeah, that, like that's a, that's a, 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 a huge moment where a, a major storyline and the character coupling actually kind of gets born right there in that, in that moment. Yeah. What other ones did you have? I had obviously the guard tearing up Weebae's room. Who told you to decorate, nigga? Once again, goes back to what you said. Uh how revenge and playing on people and, and, and payback. Become inciting incidents all throughout the wire. That's one of them right there. That guy starts his demise. It's always interesting watching the show how people never realize the moment that they fucked up. The moment that they start. The moment he tossed them. The moment he tossed them fish. Like Avon gave him one chance. Tried to talk to him later on, uh, but the moment that he tossed them fish is the moment that he got. He was got on that radar. He he was going to have to lose. Um. Uh, Valchek with Angie uh, Angie Krawcheck, uh is a is a major father. This away for a later moment, not just because of what it's going to lead to in terms of the investigation, but in terms of that character. Uh, that character uh, of Andy is going to be around um, and going to have major implications uh, in some of the uh, the most tried and true and important wire relationships um, that we've seen. That character, even though it's never gonna be, he's he's never gonna become a main character. What he does and what he represents, and who he is, is gonna become one of the main things that separates two different worlds that exist uh, in the wire. And another one is on that same tip when Stringer and Avon talk about D'Angelo. How's D taking it? I mean, he's gonna do what needs to be done, man. You know what I'm saying? D need a little help, ain't nothing again, but. You're not out of reach or nothing like that, right? Nah, not like that. Sure. He's carrying a lot of weight for us, man. Straight family, man. All right? It's family. That's the first time that you see two diverging opinions on how D'Angelo should be handled. D'Angelo is in jail. He's incarcerated. He is not in the best frame of mind. He's being cold to Avon. He's using drugs. Avon is telling Stringer, this is when Stringer's on, uh, you know, um, at, there at the prison. Avon's telling Stringer, he's family. I'm going to get him together. Stringer is skeptical about the ability to deal with D'Angelo in a business-like way. 
he you can tell in that scene he doesn't think that Avon has what it takes to put family aside and deal with D'Angelo as if D'Angelo is just another problem. That right there is going to play out not only the rest of this season, but throughout the uh, the in, in, in the future um, of, of the wire itself. So that's a huge father's away for later moment. And and if you track how whenever D'Angelo comes up between Avon and Stringer, if you just start from the beginning of how when he when he first came up, you what you will notice is that Stringer gets progressively more bold mm. about questioning whether or not this is a good idea to continue to invest and carry D'Angelo along. And this is one of those moments where he was just like, are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. This dude going to be able to do this. You think he's going to be able to make this happen, dog? I don't know about this cat, man. This cat showing a lot of weakness and Avon kind of just, Avon is, that's some, that's a, that's a, that's a bridge too far for him to, 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 to go to that point. So he just wants Stringer to stay out of it. We'll see if he can. So a big father's away for later moment was when we see Sergey, a.k.a. Boris, chasing the shepherd into the warehouse. Just y'all remember that part. Mm. You see him chasing. That is coming back in a major way. Huge. Um, horse face still in the van full of police equipment. Love it. <laughs> that, <laughs> that becomes a big, a big, big thing. Yeah. Um, also, when uh, McNulty, when he's at the bar with Bunk and Freeman, and about to do the shots when he, you know, proclaims, which I think was the the title quote on this episode, they chew you up, but they got to spit you back out. Right. Because uh, this is all leading somewhere, because uh, as if you haven't, you know, noticed, but uh, J- Jimmy McNulty's curiosity has been peaked. Yes. And that's always dangerous. It could be good, but yeah. it, it can also be quite uh, dangerous. So, um Oh, and uh, your boy Ziggy. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Approaching Nikki about going in with him on a package for White Mike. Yeah, that's that's a huge one. I have that one written written down to the beginning of the bullshit with Ziggy. (laughs) 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 Uh, Another father's away for later moment is Randall Frazier, the medical examiner. Um, when they talk about the fact that he had been with the Bureau of Mines, this is, I will say this right here. Randall Frazier, medical examiner, it, you're going to see his genius play out pretty soon. One of the most underrated characters in the history of The Wire. He is the Lester Freeman of medical examiners. This brother got skills. This brother got hair. This brother got the look of somebody that would be a mortician or a medical examiner. I he love, does have the look. Has <laughs> a look. Like, if you're like Siri, show me a medical examiner. His face. That's is on him. Top of. <laughs> I love Randall Frazier. I love what he brings. I love his genius. I love the fact that he goes t- head to head with McNulty, information wise, and he gets it done. This is one of the first times that you see him and all of his genius, but it's not the last time that you're going to see him doing this thing. Randall is amazing. So follow the scene that you saw when he was talking about the Bureau of Mines. It's a now defunct thing, but you had to be really, really smart to be a part of it. I say Bureau of Mines. Mines? Mines. And now he's doing this. He's a brilliant guy. I, I want to give shout out to Randall Frazier, man. We don't, that's one of the wire characters that's so great, and we don't talk about him enough. 
There's a, there's only one medical examiner that in the history of television, taking it outside of wire, that I could think of that was either on Randall's level or possibly better. And that would be my girl Warner from Law & Order SVU. See, I don't even know who that is. See, all my Law & Order SVU heads know who that is. Because mm-hmm. she would literally take a look at a fingernail and break down a whole crime. She would like, see, she was strangled. Mm-hmm. She did this. She did that. She had two donuts, four pieces of bacon. <laughs> she arrived at Bible study at 730. Word. That's what I got from this fingernail. And I'll be like, damn, Warner. I'm with it. She's a G uh, for sure. All right. Uh, as I said, in terms of what age the best, love that my man Avon is eating KFC. Mm. Him eating KFC. That's a story for another matter. But what did age well about his KFC? I happened to notice, you know, you have the big box that usually if you got the two or three piece that comes in. He had a smaller box. And I know what was in that smaller box. Wasn't the biscuits. It was the popcorn chicken. Oh. I saw it. You think the I popcorn spotted chicken? Yeah. That KFC popcorn chicken? Shit's undefeated, man. You it's love undefeated. it. undefeated. You love it. Yeah, I'm a Popeye's person. Right. But I tell you what will get me the KFC? The pop, the, the popcorn chicken. Really? Straight up. Interesting. Wow. It's okay. like that. So I when know- I saw that, my heart just warmed. The Shasta he was drinking didn't age so well, but that popcorn chicken. Well, he it's was about killing that. that Shasta too. <laughs> he was boy like Avon. That, that that was he was killing that. You better get in on some of this. Weebay was too distraught. Aren't you shocked? Aren't you shocked that Weebay didn't get in? Weebay was too distraught over <laughs> his fish to even eat. Some good shit. You better get in on this. Um, <laughs> you know, we uh, see Weebay kill about seven sandwiches and some potato salad, but now nah, he don't want KFC. He don't want no KFC. Two, the fish got killed. You know what aged the best for me? Uh, passing the buck to watch all of those big agencies pass the buck on 14 people that got killed. Go back for That's back a bureaucracy. Forth. That's at a bureaucracy. Work. No one, we still see that today. We see, unfortunately and sadly, in cases where prosecutors recuse themselves. And then after they recuse themselves, mm-hmm. somebody else refuses to bring charges. And it's like, who can we get? to prosecute an American murder, or in this particular case, an international murder, but it happened in America. Like, you see this so many times, or we can't do it. It's not our jurisdiction. Passing the buck is undefeated and is aged unbelievably well. And it's a completely realistic look at how none of these people want to do the one thing they're supposed to be doing, which is their fucking job. (laughs) <laughs> amazing mm-hmm. amazing how people will bend out of the way to make sure that they don't uh they don't do that um and now in terms of what age the worst and, and being you, you're you're such a student now you're not even a student of it you're a professor of pro, a pop culture van mm. did it age poorly that the package was called eminem did that age poorly interesting I wondered that because that's what that's what the white mic package was called Eminem. Yeah, I got that Eminem. Yeah, and I was like, ooh, that, that's 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 so stereotypical. It's but yet, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's an interesting question because Em is still around, but his package ain't quite hitting like it used to. Yeah. So if you were buying that Eminem in two thousand three, that same package might not be as potent now. Don't get me wrong; it'll still get you high, but it's definitely not like it was in two thousand three. Well, it's, it's, you know how all these people, all these different celebrities have different weed strands, mm-hmm. right? Like, if the weed strand was named Eminem, 
that really gonna get you? Yeah, it's probably not. I don't know. Probably I don't know about not that. right now. By the way, don't mean he's not a legend. Here, I don't listen. I don't need everybody. Uh-oh, yeah, here they come. Man said Eminem ain't a legend. <laughs> I don't need everybody in Boise and in Iowa and in uh, the mid south. I don't need it. M is a beast. One of the lyrically top why, why ten. Why you trying to play five. M like he went from Detroit? I'm not trying to put no. <laughs> Tell us <me> some Idaho. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not saying M, but that's M's base. M's base is Boise. M, M's base is playing on a blue field. M's base is in Boise, Boise State. The shade, like man. M's, I'm not, I'm not. Look, he'll tell you that's his base. That don't mean he can't. He ain't ill. He one of the illest ever. But go right now, you know what? Go right now to Ames, Iowa, and and blast that Eminem posters everywhere. I, I am whoever I say I am. If I wasn't, then why would I say I am? That's what you're M gonna just hear. Just caught a stray, man. I'm telling no you, reason. You go just to Ames, Iowa, right now. You're gonna hear that blasting out of people's cars who are protesting opening <laughs> opening the country back up that's what that's his do. base that's his base Eminem's base. base is a people protesting to open, protesting the, to open the country up blasting it Damn, out of their cars blasting that the real no mercy shady. Uh, no mercy for uh, man like this. Right. <laughs> none at all um Oh, oh, oh another, but, th- another thing that aged the best, and I think this actually might have aged the best of anything before I move on to my what aged the worst. Russian gangsters. This was a time, think about it, when you see movies now, ooh, yeah. when you see <laughs> The Equalizer, John Wick, all of these movies right now, you see a lot of, over the last couple of years, even going back a little bit further, Eastern Promises, things like that. You see a lot of Russian gangsters in I movies. I mean, shit, real life. I mean, Putin is still alive. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know I'm saying. What I'm saying? I'm like, but like, it, it's still a thing. <laughs> yeah, in film, Russian gangsters weren't quite a thing just yet. You see it a little bit in Rounders. You know what I'm saying? You, I love Rounders. You ever see Rounders? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Oh, get remember, it, like, like I'm still up from the last time I stick it in you. I love, <laughs> love Rounders. Uh, but yeah, so. But and so seeing Russian gangsters do their thing, that might have been the first time I saw Russian gangsters on TV, and that's aged really well. The worst, easy, D'Angelo's Walkman. D'Angelo's like Ooh, when I saw yeah. when I saw him put it on, it made my mm. fucking ears hurt. I saw him put that on, I'm like he not getting good sound. He not getting the best quality sound with that. He had the Walkman. I think it was a CD. No, uh, he had a he had a CD one. A CD yeah. with the CD one, but yeah, yeah. The CD disc. Yeah, yeah. He, it's it's probably skipping. He in there trying to listen. To whatever that to that new Nelly is probably skipping, but that that obviously didn't age very well. The technology has changed. Well, it, um, I don't know. Did you go through that struggle where you uh, got a connector for your car and you had the disc? Yeah, man? the little thing that yeah. goes into the uh, the, the, little the, thing. the lighter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that goes into the lighter. Mm-hmm. And if you even kissed the bump, that thing was zip. skipping. Zip. It was like zip. Song was gone. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, good luck finding finding the street with no potholes or no even just small bumps. Yeah, that shit was not. Um, it was definitely not going down. Uh, we we have a a record setting McNulty blood alcohol level in this one. Yeah, he's fourteen dry. shots of JMO. <laughs> uh, to because that's that was his penance for putting all those bodies on Bunk and Freeman. Van, uh, it's confessional time. What's the most number of shots you've ever had in one sitting? It's not a lot. It's it's really not a lot. Have you ever gotten to double digits? Hell no. Just asking. No No way. No, I'm saying I'm I'm saying for me, everyone that knows me that's listening to that right there, they know that 
that's not even in my. I'm a lightweight when it comes to that. Like I'm telling you, you we go somewhere. You get me off two smearing off ice. I'm ready to party, baby. Two smearing off two ice. Two smearing off oh. ice. I'm in the building. I don't know what it is about me that I'm. I'm not like, like I'm. It's that's not a thing for me. Like I go to places like that. I like I get a couple of lemon drops. I'm ready to get get you know. To, lemon drops. I'm telling you. Wow. I'm Like we go to ask anybody that comes out of the country with us. We go there. Couple of uh, a couple of rum punches. Maybe one pina colada. <laughs> we are ready to go, baby. That is that like that, that that is my thing, but I'm not really I I can't I don't have no stories like that. Like what about you? Oh, we know yeah, how um, you get down. We've seen it. <laughs> Do you still drink amaretto amaretto sour? I'm just because you kind of your your liquor tastes sound like a 19 year old college girl. Amaretto sours were the first thing. It's like literally my first love. Oh, is literally my first love. I tell you a quick story. Baton Rouge adjacent. Ian Spooner in Baton Rouge. We are going out to the club. I didn't really drink. I was like, I don't know what to order when I go to get a drink. Like, I don't know what to order. Like, I don't know what to get. And he was like, bro, I'll tell you what you get, bro. You get an amaretta sour. And the I man was, led you wrong. And I was like. He wasn't trying to be a friend. <laughs> I was like, oh, for real? He's like, yeah, bro. And I would get, I was like, yo, can I have an amaretta sour? I remember the dude behind the bar was like, for real? <laughs> and I was like, You yeah. deserve that. I was like, yeah, man. Now, remember, at this point. I'm 325 pounds. And he goes, he goes, I'm like, he's like, for real? I'm like, yeah. He's like, all right. And give me that. Drink it. Taste amazing. I, lo- I drank him for five, six years till I got back on that hen dog. <laughs> okay. You redeemed yourself a little bit with the hen. Right. Um, in terms of Mo shots, I think I may have done. I think I may have gotten to eight. Eight shots of what? Yeah, I think I, um, tequila, I believe it was. Right. Yeah. And so... Tequila and I used to have an abusive relationship. Now we're on great terms. We went to counseling. Mm. We could, yeah, we enjoy each other very much. So right. we found our love connection. Right. Uh, that's because I stopped drinking shitty tequila. Right. Once I stopped doing that, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this is such a different experience, yeah. you know? Uh, but I once, uh, I drank a bunch of shots. And this is when I lived in North Carolina. This is the late 90s. Me, a friend, me and two friends, we went out. And I vaguely remember being carried in my apartment. They both carried me in there and dumped me on my own bed. And that was how my night ended. Yeah. It was, yeah. And or I, I, once, I don't know how many shots it was, but the first time I ever had tequila, I split. This was in college. I split a fifth with two other girls and had the worm in it. Mm. And, I, and I actually swallowed the worm. Mm. And yeah, it, and it is true. It's a hallucinogen. I don't even know if they still make tequila with worms in it. I'm assuming that they do. But I just remember laying in my bed and I thought my stereo was trying to attack me. And so I was like fighting the air. See, that's crazy. I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like. I was hung over for legitimately two days. I'm pretty sure I, I probably had alcohol poisoning. See, I've I, like, I, I've gotten really, really drunk before, but I really don't. I rarely, because at a certain point, I want to stop because I want to like not be all physically blitzed and stuff like that. So I don't know. But Jimmy Benolte, 14 shots. Nothing 14 funny. shots, mm-hmm. but 14 right to the mouth. All good. Uh, got a little bit of trivia for you. Let's rock and, it. And, and by the way, there the only reason, well, there's two reasons. There's no Stringer Bell fuckboy moment. He was not in this inter, He was not in this episode very much. He had a, the short little dialogue with Avon, and that pretty much was it. But trust me when I tell you, I got the Thor's hammer for his ass the next one. Thor's hammer is coming. Mm. All right? It's coming. This is like when 
Thor in uh in Infinity War when he had uh you know the raccoon on his back and shit and he <laughs> dropped in and right. he brought the pain. That shit's coming next episode. Right. Trust me. Right. Because the ultimate peak, peak string, stringer bell fuckboyness happens the next episode. I got you. Um, but uh for now, little trivia. If you notice, Van, you had the gentleman um drinking beer with egg yolks in them. I saw that. I actually had to look yeah. that up. Yeah, I saw that. It was it was very strange, which yeah. I was like, is this a thing? Mm-hmm. I, I understood the Jaeger bombs. I don't know if have you ever done a Jaeger bomb? I have not. No? Okay. Uh once in your life. I would only do it one time. <laughs> Drop a shot of Jaeger in a beer, the whole thing goes down. Mm. It's actually not that bad tasting, honestly. Right. I never thought Jaeger was was awful. Anywho, uh, so this is a tradition that goes back to the eighteen hundreds. A glass of beer with a raw egg or two cracked into it was a um was the breakfast of champions for physical laborers, particularly minors in the United States. Interesting. And it became, yes, it became a tradition of blue collar manufacturing working people is that that is their thing. That's their ritual. I had to, once I saw that, I was like, is this a thing? Is this a Baltimore thing? Did I just miss out on this? Yeah. I had to know what was behind the egg yolk in a beer. Not advising you to do that at home unless you really don't like yourself, but that's where it comes from. Interesting. Didn't yeah, know it. Little yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, a little, little fun fact. You can repeat at parties. All right, man. Uh, moment of truth. Who won the episode? Valchek. Hard not to go with him, huh? Yeah, Valchek. Valchek is the one who who spins everything into motion. Valchek is the one, and you know, it, it, it's a it's a it's an easy one, but at the same time, Valchek has got is the one with his foot on the gas here, pressing the drama into overdrive. I would say that he won the episode. He's going to get his. His big time case, it's him. This seems like in Stan Valchek's career, the real f- first time he's shown even a pulse in terms of police work, probably uh, in a decade. The fact that he's actually even asking it may have been even longer than that. Longer than that <laughs> actually even right. asking questions about the propriety or impropriety of, of something going on. It just seems like something was awoken in him. Uh, and it, and it kind of that same way gets awoken in the audience. So I, I went with Valchek as having won this episode. Yeah, it, it, even though I know, especially given what the theme was, uh, that there was some collateral damage or what the name of the episode is, I would still, I would give it to McNulty again. Um, honestly. Yeah, because not only did he get to stick it to Rawls mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and look, what he did to him with the one uh, I mean, he was the one who found the girl initially who was floating uh, in the river there, and he was able to stick that on Ross. But then to come back, to come back and throw another 13 on him. Eek. Eek. <laughs> I was like, and, you know, Ross does that premature Tiger Woods fist pump after he meets with the state police the first time, thinking he has gotten away with something. Hadn't got away with nothing. Hadn't gotten away with a damn thing. And just when he was about to claim a premature victory. He had to be put in his place. So I'm enjoying immensely the humbling of Rawls. And I think McNulty's also a winner in the sense that even though he does sort of speak about his career in terms of, you know, something that's a foregone conclusion. Like, I know how this movie ends, get this retirement 10 years and I'm out, that discovering that body has awakened him because mm-hmm. I think he was kind of dead inside. Yeah. And now you see him poking or poking around a little bit. And now you see kind of flashes of the old McNulty 
coming to the coming to the surface. I mean, I think he was definitely uh, in a place of self pitying, and now you're seeing Jimmy getting his swag back. Yeah, Jimmy getting his swag back, and so when that happens, the rest of the world better watch out. Mm-hmm. So, um, our winners of this episode: uh, collateral damage, Valchek and McNulty. Um, I can't. I, I. I mean, I don't know if I've been more excited about an episode than the next one. So, uh, hopefully, you guys will join <laughs> us for that one because, I, look, I'm telling you, relentless on Streaker Bell, relentless. No give up, man. You got nothing for me on this one. Oh, I nothing. Do. I actually do. You, you have nothing, man. You I'm have waiting. nothing. Oh, I, I, okay. I do. I because I know one time oh. you're gonna call him out, and I got something for you. But let's 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 uh let's let's wait. We're gonna get into it. We will. We will. We'll get into that in this business. We call that a tease. Uh, anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, keep listening to us and keep watching the wire. We'll see y'all next time. 